One of the things that we talked about last week was biblical hope and what that means and kind of the difference between when I say I hope something happens or I hope for something and what biblical hope is. And it's different to how we think normally of what hope might be to us. And last week, as I mentioned, I was hoping it wouldn't rain while I was moving house. And fortunately, it didn't. Um, We were very blessed. I bumped the moving van back a day. Um, and we had beautiful weather for the move. We had help. It, it worked out really well. Um, I was hoping it didn't rain. It didn't, fortunately, but, you know, it could have. But biblical hope is something that, even though it hasn't happened yet, it's so sure that it's like it already has. So sure that it's like it already has. And when we say we have hope, for instance, in the promises of God, that's what we mean. It's something different than, well, I hope this might happen. I hope I win the lottery. I hope this, maybe that. It's it's a very sure thing when we're talking about biblical hope. When we talk about biblical hope, it's more like I'm really looking forward to the day when this happens because it's going to happen. That day is coming. And all of us have hope. Okay, we all have hope. And we all place that hope somewhere. And where we place that hope matters. It's important to understand that. And in our society, in our culture, in Western culture, it's a very wealthy culture. And I think part of that leads us to place our hope in things like um, financial and material success. And we believe, you know, if if I could just achieve that, if I could just get to that point, that dollar amount, whatever, everything in my life is going to be great. Everything's going to be okay if I could just get to that certain level of financial success. Now, success is a good thing, okay, including financial success. It's a good thing. I think it's helpful when we start talking about hope to also talk about how we define success. If it's financial wealth for you, as an example, at what dollar amount do you say, okay, I've achieved success. This is, I'm here, I've arrived, this is success. And then, you know, when you have that number of dollars, what are you gonna do with those dollars? And why is it that you consider that your personal definition of success? All of those things are important. I've been actually working on this a lot myself recently. I've thought about, okay, what's success to me? And I've decided it's not financial for me. Um, And I don't mean to put anyone down at all who's, you know, seeking that kind of success, but you can be a great Christian and want to be financially successful at the same time. Those things certainly aren't mutually exclusive. But for me, my definition of success is influence. Influence. To have respect so people will listen to me and allow me to help them in a way that's healthy to them personally, healthy to their family and their community at large. And through my through my ministry, through my... Uh, Counseling through my podcast, all these different things, I actually have the opportunity to influence people and hopefully do so in a good way. And that's my definition of success, is to be able to influence people. Now, there may be those who disagree with me or who don't like me, but they don't have to like me necessarily to be influenced by me. And I'm the kind of person who likes people to like me. You know, I don't set out doing anything I do intending to upset people or cause them to dislike me. But fortunately, unfortunately, sometimes that happens. But that's not part of my definition of success. So 
when that happens, it's not that big a deal. Now, as I talk about, okay, what do I think about as success? And I say, okay, influence, respect and influence. And now I know that someone listening, maybe online, maybe who's going to be listening to this a year from now, because these things hang out forever online, I know that somewhere, someone is going to be listening to this and say, well, you're a pastor. Shouldn't your definition of success be following Jesus? And to that I would say, well, that's where hope comes in. That's where hope comes in. I think it's a good, when we start to think about hope, it's, not, it's a good thing to think about, okay, success. Because success and hope are two different things. Because where I place my hope is going to shape my definition of success. So where my definition of success and where I place my hope are two separate things. They're two different things. But unfortunately, I'm afraid that many people conflate those. We place our hope in achieving whatever our definition of success is. If, for example, a person's definition of success is wealth, uh, that's likely, in our culture, where they're also going to place their hope is in wealth. That's where they're gonna, what they're going to trust. That's what they're going to hope in. And I think because we are so prone to conflating success and hope that sometimes as Christians we put a negative label on things that don't really deserve it. And sometimes we can even view some things as anti-spiritual. Me, for instance, someday I'd like to own a sports car. I'd like to drive a sports car. I'd like to own a sports car. And I just do. Well, just something I like. You know, some might say, well, that's worldly. You can't be a pastor and want a sports car. And I say, well, why not? Why can't I want a sports car? But there are all things we'd like to have. We'd all like to have. But whatever it is, you can want it. You can consider yourself successful if you get it, but you can't place your hope in it. If I place my hope in achieving that, I'll be forever disappointed. And that's why we should think about and define both success and hope, because they're two different things. We, tend to have a, we have a tendency to conflate them, and we have a tendency to place our hope in our definition of success. So I want you to ask yourself this morning, as we talk about this, where have I placed my hope because if you put your hope in a temporal definition of success, you will be disappointed. Guaranteed. It's going to disappoint you. If my definition of success is to be respected and influence people, and I also place my hope in that, if someone disrespects me or doesn't listen to me or the amount of downloads I get drops or church attendance drops, I'll be crushed and I'll consider myself a failure if that's where I place my hope because I've lost my hope if I do that. If a person's definition of success is financial success or wealth and that's where they place their hope, if they experience a financial downturn or lose, lose their wealth, they'll be disappointed, they'll be hurt, they'll be crushed. Or even if they do achieve it and they put their hope in that, they're going to think, well, this isn't what I hoped it would be, and they'll be disappointed. But for me, my hope is not in achieving influence. It's successful. I think that would be successful if I do that. But it's not where I place my hope. So when someone may be disrespectful or not influenced, I keep moving forward because that's not where I place my hope. I'm not, I'm not overwhelmed by that. I'm not crushed by that. You know, we can have failures on the road to success, but if our hope fails us, that can be catastrophic. That can be catastrophic. And think about that. Where is your hope? 
Where have you placed it? Because you have it. You have it, and you've placed it somewhere. And today is Palm Sunday, and this is usually the day when believers look to the passage of Scripture that talks about the triumphal entry, the day when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And we're going to read from Matthew chapter 1, or 21, sorry, not 1, but 21, verses 1 through 10. But this is what we refer to generally as the triumphal entry. But I think we're going to see as we look at this and maybe answer some questions that it's really kind of a story of misplaced hope. Let's read Matthew 21, verses 1 through 10. It says, When they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go over into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and he will send them immediately. All of this was done to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, humble, sitting on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their garments on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their garments on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went before him and that followed him cried out, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he entered Jerusalem, the entire city was moved, saying, Who is he? And the crowd said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And as we hear it, I pray that you would just impress it upon us, that we would open ourselves to it, that we would learn from it, maybe set aside preconceived notions, biases, all those things as best we can so that you can teach us, that we'd be open to your leading, and we're thankful for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, this passage takes place not long before Jesus goes to the cross, and we read it, or when we read it, it's obviously that that the whole city is excited to see Jerusalem or Jesus right in Jerusalem. There's all these people, they're shouting, Hosanna, you know, blessed is the son of David, and they're throwing down garments and all these things for Jesus to ride on. And there's this big parade of people, some walking ahead of him, some coming along behind him. But it's a big, big event, and everybody, the whole city was moved by it, the Bible tells us. Everybody is excited. And then when you see this scene, you wonder why it's only a short time later that people are shouting, crucify him, crucify him. You know, what happens between everyone being excited for Jesus to show up, and then uh, it's not long and everybody's shouting, crucify him, crucify him, and then they're trading his life for that of a criminal. Well, I hope we can answer that question as to what happened, among others, as we look at a few different key items, key items from this passage, things that are often overlooked, but very important, and I've got some, some items over here I'm going to share with you this morning. Um, I've got my, my palm branch. I've got a palm branch, one, uh, one of the items in this story that's actually quite important. 
and I've got an ordinary rock, ordinary rock, a little bit dirty, sorry. Also, also quite important in the story. And I've got one more, one more item. And that's a donkey, a donkey. Um, usually the donkey only gets to see the light of day at Christmas time, but I went and dug him out of the nativity set this morning, so he gets to come out for Easter too. So we've got a donkey, a palm branch, and a rock. Pretty everyday things, but actually quite important parts of this narrative. And the first one of these is the donkey. The donkey, the humble, humble donkey. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And you may have heard this story before. If you've been in church at all, you likely have. But why did he ride into Jerusalem on a donkey? Why not just walk? You know, he's been walking everywhere his whole life. And why a donkey? Why all of a sudden ride? Or, or if he's a coming king, why not a white stallion or a chariot or something like that? Well, that's because Jesus riding on a donkey is a fulfillment of a promise made by God, a fulfillment of prophecy, prophecy of Zechariah. I like to call prophecy fulfillment of promises or, or hope realized. That's what prophecy is. It's a realization of the hope that God's people had been expecting his promised king to come to Jerusalem. And this, uh, Matthew actually quotes Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And this is what he says. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter. This is from Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, and cry aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and able to deliver. He is humble and riding on a donkey, a colt, the offspring of a donkey. Now, God had made this promise long ago, long before this day, and people knew about this prophecy, and now here it is happening in front of them, and they're all excited about this. And it may seem a bit strange for Jesus to ride on a humble donkey, but when he does this, he knows this prophecy, and he's proclaiming himself to be the long-awaited king of Israel. So here comes the long-awaited king of Israel. Everybody's excited. They're throwing down their garments. They're shouting, Hosanna. This is a realization of the hope that they've put in God's promise. See, it's like one of those things that, God said it long ago, but it, and it was so true, and it, it, it's, like it already, it's like it had already happened. But they're waiting on this day, and here it's come. But, as is often the case with these kinds of things, people miss the point. They miss the point. And unfortunately, they didn't understand what was actually happening here. They thought they did. And we can't be too hard on them because, you know, they didn't have the New Testament like we do. We can look back, and we can read, and we can know exactly... What's going on here? Jesus isn't going to end up on a throne. He's going to end up on the cross. Now, this is kind of what this is like. This, everybody's excited when they see Jesus, and then you know, a week later he's on the cross, and everybody's shouting, crucify him. This is kind of what this is like. Imagine you, you load your family in the car, and you take the kids and the dog, and you get in the car, and you hop in, and you're, everybody's excited. The kids are excited because you're driving towards Maccus. Kids love that place. I don't know why, but they do. But then when you're almost there, you don't stop. You just drive right on by. You drive right on by. And you go on to one of the best restaurants in town instead of Macca's. And the kids should be excited, right? Chef prepared food, great restaurant. 
but the kids are going to be upset. They're going to be disappointed because you didn't stop at McDonald's. They don't want chef-prepared food. They want chicken nuggets. That's just what kids want. Even in a nice restaurant, that's what they order. That's what they want. Did you ever have something similar like that happen to you as a kid? It seems like I did. I can't remember exactly what, but there's something that, you know, you're disappointed, even though you're really getting something better over here. And this is kind of like the story of when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. Everyone's excited until they later find out that things aren't going the way that they thought they were going to go, that they hoped they would. And they hoped that Jesus would fix the world right now. He's going to come and he's going to fix things. He's going to make things the way we want them. But that's not why Jesus said, come. Now, another key item in this passage is the palm branch, which are a bit of a nemesis for some of us. Those things are they're all over the yard. They fall in the pool. They're kind of a pain in the neck. But a palm branch. And the crowd was waving palm branches, or at least tree branches of some sort. Really, the language there could be anything, but that's just semantics. It doesn't really matter. It's not that big a deal. We're going to say a palm branch. And they're throwing garments on the ground so Jesus can ride over the, them uh, on his donkey. And what's the significance of this with the palm branches and the shouting and the, all this stuff going on. Well, maybe you've seen a movie where a Roman emperor or an, any emperor for that matter comes back to his city, to his home, and they're throwing a big parade, a victory parade as he comes back victorious from conquering other lands and maybe they throw flowers or uh, confetti or whatever it might be and they throw a big victory parade for the returning general or the returning emperor. And this is a similar kind of scene. This is what the people are thinking. They're throwing a victory parade for Jesus. Uh, this is fulfilled prophecy. This is a long-expected king that they've been waiting on. And he's going to come, and he's going to fix things, and he's going to cast off this oppressive Roman government that we don't like. And that's what people are thinking. This is a victory parade. You know, things are going to change. They're going to be different people thought that Jesus had arrived to give them a political victory over the Roman government. They were excited about that, as, as you would be if that's what you thought Jesus was coming for. They believed he was going to bring them success, success, to give them victory over their oppressors. But Jesus had come for something much larger than that, something much more important than that. But in this moment, no one really understands what's happening. Yes, it's, it's, it's definitely the fulfillment of prophecy, just not the way they had hoped it would be. And you can read about that in John 12, 16, I believe it is, and it talks about his disciples being a bit confused about what's going on here. But when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, it wasn't to gain approval or support or political success. It was none of those things. Jesus, as he rides into Jerusalem, was the only one in that crowd that day who truly knew what was going on and the only one who understood why he was really there. Now this event is recorded in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in the book of Luke, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, the people are shouting, Hosanna, you know, blesses is the king who comes in the name of the Lord which is an expression of great adoration. It's an expression of praise. That's what Hosanna is. 
And this is also a fulfillment of prophecy. The people shouting. Where it said in Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, and cry aloud. And that's what's happening. But some of the Pharisees see this, and they say to Jesus, Tell your followers to stop that. Tell them to be quiet. They shouldn't be saying that. And Jesus said, If they keep quiet, even the stones will cry out. The stones will cry out. And that's another clue as to what's going on here with the rock. People are expecting temporal success, political victory, and that's where they've placed their hope. They place their hope in that. But it's not just Israel who's been waiting on God's promised king. This is much bigger than that. All of creation has been waiting on God's promised king. All of creation has been waiting on redemption. See, the world today is not what God created it to be. It was perfect in the garden, but sin changed that. So Jesus has come not only to redeem lost souls, but also all of his creation and restore it to what he intends it to be. That's part of redemption. A donkey, a palm branch, and a rock. Often overlooked, but, but very important parts of the story, very important parts of the passage. Now, it wasn't that long between people shouting Hosanna and people shouting, crucify him. You know, set Barabbas free, crucify Jesus. Why is that? Why did that happen? It's because people had placed their hope in political success. They saw Jesus coming. You know, they're shouting Hosanna, but their hope wasn't in him. It was in political success. And that led to a massive disappointment. A massive disappointment. When everyone is giving Jesus a victory parade, shouting Hosanna, praise God, here's the promised king, they aren't thinking about redemption. They're not thinking about God redeeming his creation. They're not thinking about him redeeming people from sin. They're thinking about what success meant to them in that moment, what the king was going to do for them and their situation with the Roman government. Have you ever taken the time to consider your own definition of success and where you place your hope. Because if you place it in the wrong place, it's going to be terribly disappointing. You thought about your calling, your purpose. How does that work out in your life? Where are you placing your hope? Now, if we measure Jesus by our cultural standards of success, or even the cultural standard of success by the day, he would be a miserable failure. People often think Jesus' purpose was to, you know, today think his purpose was to teach people how to be a good person, which, you know, he, he did teach about that. Or maybe they think he's a, a political figure, and we still often think that way today. But what a lowly trade to think of Jesus that way, like that's his purpose, that's why he came, that's what the king was there to do. It's like getting chicken nuggets when you could be eating chef-prepared food. And if you expect Jesus to fulfill your definition of earthly, worldly, temporal success, you're going to be disappointed. You're going to be disappointed. That's what everybody's doing in this passage. They're all excited. Their definition of success is an earthly king who's going to change their relationship with the Romans. Not a heavenly king who's going to redeem their relationship with God. Two very different things. 
They weren't placing hope in Jesus. They were, they were placing their hope in what they thought would be a great success. If Jesus is not first your hope, he's not your savior or your king. The people shouting Hosanna didn't place their hope in Jesus. They placed their hope in what they thought he was going to do for them in the moment. This is a story of misplaced hope. Misplaced hope. All the right things were in place to show where hope should be. There's so many stories in the Bible like that. It's just, it's just fascinating when you read and you dig into all of this and you see these little things along the way that are, that are all part of this, that are there to show you what this is really about. But their hope was misplaced. And I wonder how many people are making that mistake right now in the world. How many people have misplaced their hope and they placed hope in Success, You know, if I just get there, if this happens, if I, you know, whatever it might be, if I, if I get into this house or I get this job or I have this dollar amount in my bank account or if I, you know, reconcile my family even, you know, and none of those are bad things. That's what makes it so challenging is none of those are bad things. But if we place our hope in our definition of what should be defined as success, we're going to be disappointed. And I wonder how many people are doing that. They place their hope in success and maybe even in something good like a church or family or even in Jesus just making their life better instead of placing their hope in Jesus as Savior. Then when success doesn't come, they're disappointed, they're hurt, they're crushed, they're disillusioned. You know, we're always focused on fixing temporal problems and it's not wrong to want to fix problems. Just like it's not wrong to want to define success. But if we place our hope in problems being fixed, or we place our hope in success, disappointment is right around the corner. It's right around the corner. But for our hope to shift from problems being solved or achieving success requires a life-altering event. It really does. It requires something to change who we are foundationally. And for some, that may be a really big thing. It may be painful or even traumatic. For others, it may be more smooth, more easy. But we need that time in our life where we become someone different than who we were before. The moment where we become what the Bible calls a new creation in Christ, where we no longer place our hope in success or fixing problems or getting well, but the where we place our hope is in nothing more than Jesus' blood, nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. Friday was day 12 of our 21 days of hope leading up to Easter. And in the notification and the email that went out that day was a challenge to share your hope story. And someone recently asked me to share about the time in my life when I came to know Jesus as my Savior. And that the time when I stopped placing my hope in success and earthly things. And I thought, you know, I have a platform, I have influence, I'm going to use that to share my hope story. So I said, okay, instead of doing it on Friday, I'm going to wait and do it on Sunday. That moment in my life where there was a foundational change in who I am, in who I am. And my hope story 
starts with my wife, Christine. She's, she's a pivotal part of it. And I'm going to tell the family-friendly version of this story. But Christine, she came to know Jesus 10 years before me. 10 years before me. And those years in between were not easy years. They were very difficult for both of us. It's difficult when you're in a marriage and you're going different directions. You're kind of pulling, uh, pulling against each other. I was in the Marines. We were newlyweds. Uh, living in our first apartment together in Southern California. And Christine was listening to Chuck Swindoll. Uh, many of you probably know who Chuck Swindoll is. Great guy. He's been in public ministry forever. Um, but yeah, I've been doing public ministry a very long time. And during this, this radio program, he made a presentation of the gospel message. And how that Christ died for our sins and how he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And Christine heard this, and she's like, you know, I've never understood that before. I've never really heard this like this before. And she ended up praying, and she accepted Jesus. And she called the radio station, and she told them. And they said, well, find a church and get plugged in. And, and she tried to do that, um, but I wasn't helpful with that. I was very much against that. And she wanted to give money to her, her, her church, and I really, really hated that, which is kind of ironic, seeing as how now I'm my living comes from people giving money to a church and see how God works in that. But we went through this for 10 years, 10 years, and we fought and we struggled and we were not happy. And, and Christine was trying to tell me about Jesus and what he had done for us and his, his shed blood on the cross and, and that just caused more trouble and grief. I just didn't want to hear it. I didn't want any part of it. I wanted nothing to do with any of it. And I worked in environments that were generally not family friendly. Um, I was a, a bouncer at a, a, par, a bar for a while. I was also a beer salesman for quite a while. And my work often kept me away from home for days at a time. And I'd go several days without seeing the kids. And I was also a very heavy drinker at the time. I drank a lot. And I often justified that as being part of my job. And it eventually came to to a point where things were particularly bad, particularly difficult. And I remember Christine and I, we had a pretty epic fight one day. And uh, Christine later told me that it was at that moment that she prayed and told God, she said, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. If, if God, if you don't do something, I, I can't go on like this. I can't keep going on like this. And not longer after that, it was, it was, uh, It wasn't long after that that it was New Year's Eve, and it was a big night for sales for me, being a beer guy. And I was out working that night and doing a big promotion um, in business, and you know, I was involved with this New Year's Eve thing. And I was out and about doing all that, and Christine and I had actually made plans for that New Year's Eve, and we were going to spend some time together. But I got wrapped up in work, and you know, one thing led to another, and I drank way too much, and I, I don't know to what time it was when I eventually headed home, but it was obviously very late. And I'd long since blown any plans of us doing anything, spending any time together that evening. But someone gave me a ride home. Fortunately, I didn't drive. But someone gave me a ride home and dropped me off near my house. And I was, I was so intoxicated, I didn't even really know where I was. I was lost. I didn't even know where my house was at. And it was snowing. It was the middle of winter time there, and it was freezing, it was snowing. And among all of this, just to come out and say it, I, I hated my life. I hated myself. I hated my life. I hated everything about it. 
I'd hated my life for most of my life at that point. And I remember falling down in the snow. I slipped and I fell and laying there watching the snow fall and being quite comfortable, actually. And thinking to myself, I'm just going to lay here. I'm going to pass out and I'm going to freeze to death. And I was quite okay with that. I was just going to lay there and die. And then there was a light. It wasn't anything supernatural. It was a porch light. And it was my porch light. I'd actually found my, somehow found my way into my own backyard. And Christine had heard me. And uh, she drugged me in the house. And, and she was rightfully upset. But even now I remember she wasn't angry for selfish reasons. But even in a time like that, she was angry out of care for me. Which I'm very grateful for. And it's always been a lot to me. But Christine went away for a few days after that to visit her parents. And I had a couple days to spend by myself as I said Christine had been telling me about Jesus and my need for him over the previous 10 years. And I was, I was thinking about these things. And I remember one thing in particular that she told me that stuck with me, that really resonated with me. One of the few things she said that I stuck in my head. And I'm pretty sure she said it at a time when we weren't getting along that well. But she said something like, if you don't know Jesus, when you die, we'll never see each other again. And that stuck with me. As hard as things were, we loved each other. We always loved each other, even when we didn't get along. But she came home after she'd been visiting with her parents. And we were lying in bed that night, and God convicted me. And I realized I needed a Savior. And I asked Christine to help me pray. And we prayed in bed that night. And I said, look, I, I understand all the stuff you've been trying to tell me. And we prayed and I accepted Jesus. No pastor, no church, not even a Bible. Just the witness of a faithful and humble wife. A wife who loved me and cared for me. And, you know, that's certainly not the last time I ever did anything stupid. And it wasn't the last fight we ever had. And, but where I placed my hope had changed. Had changed. And not everything I did changed overnight. It took a lot of time. It takes a lot of time to change and grow and learn. Even with God's help, it's not easy. And I've still obviously got a long ways to go. But things did change. I'm different now than who I was then. And my hope is in a different place now than it was then. And eventually, I ended up getting involved with the church, long story short. A lot happened between then and now, but here I am. But just barely, just barely. Almost didn't make it. And I remember when I went and told my boss that I was going to move so I could attend seminary, he said, well, I'll never say I've seen it all again. But my hope had shifted. I don't know that I ever really had placed my hope in much of anything at the time. I suppose I had hoped maybe someday to be successful, but I lacked hope, and I think that's part of why I was so miserable. And I'm still not exactly what people would consider an excitable or super happy person. I like to think of myself as a little more balanced, but I've redefined success, and I have placed my hope in Jesus. That's where my hope lies. So that's my story of hope. That's how things changed in my life. That's the time and place that those things changed in my life. And I hope that maybe that story resonates with someone and helps them understand 
the need for Jesus, if you're struggling with hope, where is my hope? If it's in temporal things, if it's, if it's in the things of this world, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Another person, uh, a job, a bank account, whatever it is, those things are only temporal. And ultimately, they're going to disappoint you. They just will. But Jesus won't. He won't disappoint you. We all need a Savior. And if you don't have Jesus, you, you just don't have that. And I encourage you to think about that. Where have you placed your hope? And if it's not in Jesus, I encourage you to place it in Him. And you can do that right now. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to have a word of prayer to close out this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you in prayer. I pray that you would convict us where we need convicting. Show us how you'd have us live. Show us where to place our hope. And I pray if someone doesn't know Jesus as Savior, that they would turn to him now, recognizing that he's taking the sin of this world on himself and through his shed blood has redeemed us to our Heavenly Father. And Lord, we're just so grateful for this opportunity to come together to worship and to share hope. We're thankful for Jesus. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.